At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more... Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. If all my awareness and attention is on worry, and if I can be aware, that's where my awareness is flowing. If I can just watch it and start separating from all that worry and the thoughts of worry, it's like suddenly they start losing their power to get somehow diffused or something. All right, welcome back, everybody. We're here for another episode of Comeback Stories. So today's guest is Baron Baptiste. So for more than 30 years, Baron has devoted his life to creating and sharing transformational yoga practices and programs. He began to seriously study yoga at the age of 12. And today, he shares the Baptiste yoga methodology through workshops, retreats, trainings. And he's a New York Times bestseller who's written multiple books. This dude has been doing amazing things for a while, and it's just an honor to have him on our show today. So welcome, Baron. Thank you for having me, Darren and Donnie. Really, yeah, it's good to be here with you. Yeah, it's great to connect. So we always dive right into your comeback. And we want to know for you, what was growing up for you like? Wow, that question has a whole (laughs) multi-dimensional... When you ask me that question, what was it like? You know, if I were to put it into two words, it was free, like freedom and painful. Maybe a third word, lonely. And I, I say freedom because my parents, they were almost like early hippies in the 60s, but they didn't do drugs. They didn't smoke pot. They were all about just natural ways of eating, living. My dad was like a guru, a meditation guru. And we had a restaurant in San Francisco, a restaurant, health food store, and a store dedicated to just like herbal medicinals. And my father was an herbalist as well. And then upstairs from there was a yoga center. There was a dedicated gymnasium. My father was an early Mr. America in the 1940s, late 1940s before, you know, using drugs or steroids or hormones or anything. He was a real pioneer in kind of natural bodybuilding. And so he, when Eastern teachings were introduced to him, my dad really took on kind of the blending of East and West, West practices for health. 
And, and meditation was a part of that mind, body, spirit kind of thing. So I grew up around that. And, and my parents really were pretty like, kind of like hippies in a lot of ways and pretty hands off with me. So I had a lot of freedom as a kid starting young and through my teen years. So I had that freedom, but I think there's a part of me that didn't, I didn't have that traditional kind of family that like my friends had or neighbors, kids had like, parents, more of like a traditional kind of way of growing up. Mine was way more freestyle. And I think there's now in reflection, there was kind of a deep ache of loneliness. Like I didn't really have a lot of friends because I was teased a lot. I was like different, the different kid. Kids used to tease me, call me Hare Krishna and stuff. And then there's a painful part of all that. If I look back to my childhood, it was a painful time. Can you walk us through or even describe maybe an early memory of pain? One, one that really stands out to you? Oh, man, a whole bunch come to me. Well, even real early, you know, I grew up going to public schools in, in the city in, in San Francisco, went to public schools. But early on, I remember being bused. So I started out in the first or second grade, third grade like being able to walk to school. School is just like three, three or four blocks up. You know, my parents would walk me or I would just walk up uh, to school. And then something happened and our school was being renovated. So I ended up being bused across the city. And those morning bus rides <laughs> with other kids were pure torture for me. I was the kid that just, man, it, I was the go-to kid to pick on. Uh, again, you know, they called me Hare Krishna. They'd sing songs about me on the bus. They'd put gum in my hair. I come off that bus beaten up. Some I have memories of that. That was tough and it was painful. And I don't know why looking back, but I wouldn't tell anybody. I would just hold on to those experiences. I think I was like embarrassed and I felt shame about it, humiliation. So I would not tell anybody. And I remember the bus driver, I always wondered why wasn't that guy who would with the same bus driver never said anything. He just let the kids pick on me and he would just never say anything. But those were painful memories for me, those morning bus rides. I can give you an, a little more of an example too. Like my parents, again, were like these health food kind of hippie yoga people. And they would pack, a, like my mom would pack a, a lunch and she would put in my lunch bag, like a, let's say a sandwich with like brown bread, like wheat bread. And in back in those days, all the other kids had wonder bread you know, white bread and all the ends, the crust was shaved off. I had wheat bread. I had a banana. I always would have a banana with like brown spots, a yellow banana with brown spots. All the other kids had yellowish green bananas and I'd get fruit in my lunch. And the other kids, I mean, that was a source. Eating lunch was a source of a lot of teasing too. Like I was just picked on because I was different. I was the weird kid. So that kind of had me feel alone. Like I didn't belong. And it was painful, yet I think it built a resiliency up inside of me as well. It made me stronger in a lot of ways in, in hindsight. Clearly, in the long run, for sure. But yeah. how did the kids know, like calling you Hare Krishna... How did they know? Was it, was it the vibe? Was it the way you dressed? Was it because they knew who your parents were? Like, what exactly was it in you that um, had them kind of targeting you to that? San Francisco then, and where the neighborhood we lived in, in the Upper Richmond District, my father purchased a Masonic auditorium. It was almost like a half of a city block. And that's where we had, he had his yoga centers and health food store and 
restaurant and all that. So it was pretty known. Like we were pretty known in the community and in the city at large. My parents were pretty well known. And back then, yoga and healthy eating, like there wasn't much else in the city. There weren't like now, you know, you can find a yoga studio on every city block or Whole Foods and it's more just common now, that kind of thing. But back in the 70s, it was still kind of new. So my parents stood out as different and people knew. Yeah. Knew me, knew my parents and somehow kids knew that I came from, you know, those are my parents, those like the different ones. <laughs> yeah. Growing up for you, who would you say your your first real teacher was? I mean, definitely my father. My my dad was a teacher. So I think being around my dad, you know, and my mom. My mom was a teacher of yoga, hatha yoga. And but I think being around them and you know, my dad just had such a you know, my dad and my mom, but really my dad had such a natural way of, I don't know, just relating to people and serving, like serving the community, serving people who are down and out. You know, he always opened up his restaurants to like homeless people needed food. And I just watched, I think just being around my dad and how people appreciated what my parents were doing in the city of San Francisco. And that, that was, um, for sure, like my first teacher in that sense, but maybe for all of us, our teacher, our parents are our first teachers. But if I look like in the yoga realm at around 16 or 17 years old, I remember my parents were invited to a dinner for BKS Iyengar, the yoga teacher. He was visiting from India and he was leading a, like an immersion in San Francisco. And my parents were invited to a dinner that was being held, like a private dinner at someone's home for Iyengar. My parents brought me and I, I remember seeing this, you know, man, and he was glowing and had a huge personality. And uh, when we're walking out of the house that evening after that dinner, and and people were just all saluting Mr. Iyengar as they're walking out, and and he looked at me and he said, um, you know, I was about 16 years old. He and he said, "Come to my immersion tomorrow. Uh, come to my immersion. Come come study with me." So I went, and um, and that was my first introduction to like really athletic, physical yoga practice. And I, it was a teacher's immersion. So it was like 200 of his teachers. And it was that whole kind of practice was brand new to me. The first thing he said is Tadasana and everybody stood up the top of their mats. And then he's like, something like, okay, drop backs, drop backs. So he just had everybody doing drop backs. And I'm looking around going, huh? And people are dropping back to back bends standing up, back bend, standing up. I was like, whoa, this is something. It lit a fire in me for the physical like athleticism of it. And later, as I studied more with Iyengar, it, it lit up the kind of in me that mind-body balance and, and power that could come through asana practice. What a beautiful foundation to... Um, you know, Darren and I talk and coach a lot around the four agreements and mm. how when we're the, the domestication process in our early years, how we are mm. domesticated to agree upon certain things as our truths. Mm. And for you to get that foundation um, so young, but at the same time, from your peers being looked at like an outcast had to be very confusing yeah. And Darren can share a little bit about his story and, and why mm. growing up for him was confusing, but where it's led you and how you were able to um, see the teacher, right, with Iyengar in that first session that you had with him. Like, mm -hmm. it's just, to me, it's like, what a beautiful foundation, although it was probably terribly confusing in the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Well, I can't wait to uh, get into more of uh, your methodology and the impact that you had in the yoga uh, community a little later. But you know, here on Comeback Stories, we like to you know present the picture of uh, people that are successful, people that do great things, but knowing that they had to overcome some adversity to get to that point in their life. So mm-hmm. I want to ask you, uh, what would be the most adversity that you've ever faced in your life? What did that point in your life look like? Uh, what were some of the feelings and emotions that were going through you? Just take us through what that time period was like for you. Oh, man. Which one? <laughs> yeah, I feel like my, a lot of my life has been hitting bottom and, uh, you know, hitting bottom, being kind of brought to my knees in, in uh, fetal, emotional fetal position. But I've learned that at the bottom there, you know, it's beautiful. It's an opportunity for new beginnings and learning. So, yeah, one example would be, I mean, really, like, my childhood is kind of stacked with a lot of trials and tribulations and adversity, I'd say, because I, I started, because I didn't really belong with kind of the kids in my neighborhood so much or kids that went to school and, you know, you're supposed to go to school and you're supposed to study and get good grades and, you know, you're supposed to do things right. And I didn't fit into that group. So I found kids that were probably like me that didn't fit in and into that kind of traditional trajectory. And I started hanging out with, I I got into surfing pretty young at Ocean Beach in San Francisco and started hanging out with surfer kids. And so we you know, would not, I I didn't go to school very much. And I remember getting report cards with just like all Fs (laughs) and like 75 absences and like seventh grade, eighth grade, like that. And, but what I got into with those kids, you know, we started using drugs, like mostly like alcohol, pot, you know, like some like pills, quaaludes, things like that. But there was something very self-destructive about it all, you know, and especially in hindsight, but I was trying to put out snuff out or stuff down that deep pain I had. I want to say that it showed up as I know you're asking for something specific like adversity, but I just want to say like for a lot of years, and especially through my teenage years, it was like I lived on the edge. And looking back, I had a lot of life and death situations probably the healthiest thing I had is in the background, I knew my parents weren't a healthy things. That was like some light at the end, light. I I don't know at the end of the tunnel, but there was some light there, something different. And then also surfing. I was into surfing and also martial arts. I did martial arts every day in the afternoons. I'd go and just study and work out and do like Taekwondo and like that and compete. But one big point of adversity for me was... So I I went on to get married at a certain point, had three kids, and went through a divorce. And that was very... Man, that was painful for me. That that family... I I think having a family, a wife... And we had um, three boys together, my ex-wife. And I think that was the first time in my life that I had a feeling of a connected like family. Because prior to that, I just... Again, with my family and parents, it was just there was a separation. There's just a disconnect, and so I had that feeling of closeness. And then when my wife, ex-wife, and I decided to separate, there it was again—that deep, deep like ache and loneliness and pain. 
And I think that something though in that, it was like an opportunity. I realized like if I'm going to be have family in my life, I'm going to have to create it. I'm going to have to find people that are like family to me. And but yeah, that's one example of me being brought to my knees. <laughs> it's crazy when I listen, I can hear, you know, the the similarities in, you know, just the inner child of when you were had a divorce, when you were a, a grown man and when you're in that moment of pain, it's similar to, you know, what it was like when you were a child and the emotions that you were feeling. Uh, I can relate to that so much in yeah. my story. I've always wanted to fit in myself and the same pain I felt when I was 24, 25 years old mm-hmm. uh, with the de- with the destruction I was going on in my life was the same kind of pain and feelings and emotions I had when I was 10, 11 years old. Mm-hmm. Now I still carry those with me. So yeah. uh, how was, how are you able to find a way to, you know, deal with that pain and move on from it and find the freedom from it? Because a lot of people, you know, they, they stay stuck to those emotions and those feelings because it's hard to change. It's hard to address them and to really yeah. uh, move on from them. How did that happen for you? Yeah, it's, it's really good. It's something I think that like suffering and pain and, and kind of hitting bottom for me, I was at a, a precipice. Like and there was like a, a clear choice because I could see my pain could be dealt with by putting it on others, like blaming others for how I ended up like this in this place in my life and in this kind of pain. I, I saw pain as a way of getting projected out on others. If or the other option is, well, wait, it's like this is my life. And who do I want to be in my life for, you know, myself, for my kids, for anyone, my ex-wife, for people, people in my life, like who, you know, do I want to be in my life? But I saw that to be who I wanted to be, which is someone who makes a difference and makes a contribution and someone who's in, in service of what's good in life and good in people will, will, it'll take me giving something up, like letting something go. And so, it was around this time, I'm kind of going backwards actually, before my divorce, I was introduced to a way of meditating, um, like meditation through a meditation teacher. He was a Jewish teacher from the like Hebrew tradition. And he taught a way of meditating. This is in Los Angeles that was observation. So it was like you get grounded in your body and you observe, essentially you observe your thoughts, you observe you know, emotions, you observe breath flow and you just you watch and you observe you observate <laughs> i don't know if that's a word but what i saw like i had been practicing meditation and it and i remember that i suddenly saw all this anger and resentment i had and this was around the time of my divorce where it really just flooded me i was like so present to how much anger and resentment i had and i was like i'd never seen myself up to that point in my life as like an angry person, if you would have asked me, I was like, no. And, you know, I'd have like a yoga philosophy or spiritual philosophy. I could like, who me? Like prior to like really hitting bottom, I just didn't see a lot of things about myself that it was hitting bottom there and the pain that I suddenly saw how much resentment I had. And specifically, like I remember just sitting and meditating, like getting still and just like a boiling pot like a brew of like fire, (laughs) fiery anger just coming up. And then it would also come up as, and I would just watch it. And I'd watch the thoughts that went along with that anger. And they weren't 
pretty thoughts. There are thoughts sourced out of like this anger and this some other kind of story that was disempowering to me. And then I saw though, it was like I had a lot of anger toward my father and I had never seen that before. I had a lot of anger that I saw that was toward him for not being there for me at times when I needed him growing up and for not being there. And then also different times for being there, but in ways that just seemed like cruel or mean or things like that. And I was holding this judgment. And it was really like a forgiveness. It was forgiving my dad that got me... I don't know, something, I don't know if it got me or I, something just lifted off of me is what it felt like a straight jacket and some kind of heaviness, some kind of denseness. Like it just lifted off of me and it, it, it occurred like in a moment and it was like a whole new way of seeing opened up to me. And I remember going to my dad and just saying sorry, apologizing for holding like judgment against him and resenting him and, and that, that was a big pivot point in my life. Like suddenly I was able to like, I don't know, like in my business or setting up things in, in my work and relationships. And I just had a bigger vision of life and myself. But that was a big shifting point for me. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening right now can relate to that when you can get to a point where you can let go of the things that are no longer serving you. Uh, Mm -hmm. It can be easy to hold on to the resentments and the anger because it may feel justified and all the things that you felt throughout your life, you may feel like, you know, I deserve to feel this way, but is it even really serving you in a positive way anymore? So that's probably right there. How did yoga help you through all this, through all these journeys? How was that practice and becoming of service to other people through yoga? How has that helped you? in defining you know who you are and not and disassociating yourself from all the painful emotions. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I think my personal relationship with yoga is kind of a weird one um for me because I was born into like a family <laughs> of yoga practitioners and growing up my parents would take trips to India and we would study with different like Indian masters and gurus and whether it's through learning mostly around meditation and like the spiritual kind of limbs and aspects of yoga practice. But I think because it was like a default for me and I'd grown up around, it was familiar to me. Like I didn't grow up, you know, like Christianity or more traditional religion or anything like that. So I think when I got into my early twenties and I, I was practicing yoga a lot. But I physical practice, like getting, you know, I was going to say on my mat, but I think I was before yoga mats, even back in the 80s and stuff. <laughs> yoga mats were just starting. You'd have a towel, basically. But I would practice, you know, con- I had a consistent practice and I physical practice. And then I also studied yoga philosophy and, you know, and I was very interested in that. I, Ayurveda, they eat limbs. I would study different scriptures and with different scholars and things like that. But I, I, it was, it never, for some reason, and I don't know if it has to do with my childhood and just growing up around it, but it never penetrated me in my like experience. I want to say I had more of like an intellectual, theoretical grasp of it, but it didn't necessarily like really impact my experience of living. 
But the physical practice, and maybe because I'm just by nature athletic, probably like both of you, Darren, obviously, as an athlete, the physical practice speaks to you. And, and Donnie, I'm sure you as well. But it's like, what I started to see is I started to separate the physical practice because I, when I kind of woke up to this, like in meditation, all this anger I had, I hadn't seen it before. I had a lot of like theory, like yoga theory and concepts. But I think the physical practice became a go-to for me because, you know, as asana, you can be really right, be there and get in your body and your breath and it has a meditative quality. And I think that was, that part of it was very powerful. It was like something embodied. And then I was able to bring like the meditation practice I was doing to observe myself and let stuff just rise up and like let it go. And it was more of embodied. So the physical practice, the embodying part, I think was very, it's been very pr- powerful for me because it's allowed me to get to more of my like living experience, you know, here now in my body, different than the study of yoga. And I think I started letting go of just the studying of it. And I started putting my attention more on my experience, just my own experience. And then I ended up gravitating more toward other kinds of teachings that like I started discovering like Christian mysticism, Judaic mysticism, Zen, Buddhism, like philosophies that I found to be like, I always look for what is going to alter my experience, my living experience, like moment to moment to moment kind of thing. I guess what I'm also saying is I'm not someone who pursued like the eight limbs of yoga as my spiritual path. It just never quite worked out for me like that. I wasn't called to it. Maybe because I didn't have a teacher that was awakening or teaching it in such a way that was awakening something of me in me. It always felt more like head knowledge. I just want to go back to what you talked about with meditation and how that was what brought observing, the Mm. observing piece of it, how that brought up this awareness of this resentment and then the resentments that you were having and then the thoughts around it where Darren and I come from the world of recovery and in the 12 steps, Mm. you know, there's a step in there where you're identifying your your resentments, looking at your Mm. part. But I just want to drive home the point of the power of meditation Mm. that you can access this without having to go through the 12 steps you can, mm-hmm. if you are willing to sit in your shit, if you will, mm-hmm. and really sit in it and, and observe what's happening, you can get to the root of the problem. One of my teachers would always say that meditation is about getting to the root of the problem, mm-hmm. digging it out and healing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I know I've heard you talk about multiple times how we, like in life, we're either expanding or contracting. And I feel Mm. like resentment is a way of contracting, right? And closing ourselves off. And you know the Mm. saying, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person Mm. to die. And what I heard in all of that was this level of acceptance, where acceptance to Mm. me is what loosens the grip in a natural way. And when you were able Mm. to accept, it doesn't mean you had to like it. It just mm-hmm. meaning that you had to accept it so that you could move mm-hmm. forward, which moved you into a, an action of forgiveness, which just you walking us through that was just so powerful. And I know mm-hmm. there's listeners out there that probably need to hear that about this, the power of forgiveness and what resentment can do to our lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's Well, I want to acknowledge the 12 steps. A very good friend of mine is like very into 12 steps and he was an, was an alcoholic, is... 
he, he would say I am an alcoholic, right? But he's been sober for like 25 or 30 years, something like that. And, uh, and I started going to meetings with him. I remember in Los Angeles years ago and he, and I would see like, I was like, well, I'm not alcoholic. It, at that point, I had let go of, I know it was somewhere around 18, 19 years old. I just gave up alcohol, drugs, everything. And I went, I just went straight edge. <laughs> I just went clean. I just did that on my own. And I, I knew I was going to die if I didn't or something. I would end up in a very bad place if I didn't get off that trajectory. So I, I just went clean and I, but I still had something, a lot of unresolved things in myself. And I remember my, fr- my buddy going to 12 steps and I was like, alcohol isn't a problem for me, but I could see it's just a general way of being that's my problem. And, um, and I remember he explained, like, I went through the 12 steps. I started going to meetings with him and I was like, well, he's like, no, these kind of apply to your life. Like they're principles that apply to your life. So I, I want to just acknowledge that work. I'd like, I got so much from those steps. And I, I, I think there was a key part though. This is what I'm getting to is one of the steps where you go and you make amends with someone. There was something in there that, around that step of go and make amends. And that was when I went to my parents and um, and said, actually, the very first time I went to my parents, I remember I had this like epiphany. I was meditating and it was the same time I'd been going to some 12-step meetings. I got this epiphany that I need to like go tell my parents I forgive them. So I literally, I remember I jumped on a flight. I was in LA, got into San Francisco. I didn't call them to tell them I was coming. I just showed up at their front door. I said, I need to talk to you. I've come to some kind of reckoning with myself, some kind of truth. And I want to forgive you for ruining my life. <laughs> and it didn't go well at all. Like it, it just didn't go. They didn't understand. And, and I was like, yeah, I forgive you for you know ruining my life or not being there for me and all this. And then I left and we I didn't talk to my parents for a couple of years almost. I want to say a year and a half, two years. We did not talk. But in that time, I was going to 12-step meetings. I was doing whatever kind of work on myself. I was practicing yoga pretty much every day for years. I would meditate. I didn't miss a day of meditation for like 15 years. And during that time, I was meditating two or three times a day, often just for like 20 or 30 minutes at a time. But I was having these, I had a whole other wake and I'm like, Oh, wait, wait. I don't have to go tell them I forgive them. I need to go and tell them I'm sorry for judging them and holding a sword over them and resenting them. And no, no, it's like me over here. I remember I got on a flight again. I showed up and they're like, oh, I, I need to talk to you. And they're like, oh no, here we go again. <laughs> it's like, and I want you to know like everything good in my life is from you all, like mom and dad, like you you gave me just, you did your best. You've given me so many gifts. I can see it now. And anything that's not working in my, in my life, that's me. And it's my life. And I want to apologize because I've been judging you, resenting you. And really, that's not who I want to be. That's on me. So I, I am sorry. And it was amazing. I remember we cried and hugged. And it was right there, that bigger shift. Ha- that was when my life really pivoted and something new opened up to me. Yeah. I love that story. And it sounds to me, I was just having this conversation with a friend that's also sober last week. And we talked about everything changed for us 
when we stopped blaming mm. and stopped being the victim and took ownership. And mm. that's what I heard in what you just shared was just o- taking ownership and, and making amends to them for the judgment and bringing a level of love and compassion, knowing that, yeah, they were just doing the best mm. they can with what they had. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't have Oprah or any manual back then. Back then, an old school thing. <laughs> my mom never had her dad around and she never only met her dad once, apparently. And my, my dad was the oldest of like 11 kids and their mom walked out on them when my dad was, they were pretty young. My dad was like 12 or 13, I don't know, pretty young, a teenager. And he was like their caretaker. But I realized my parents really didn't have great examples of parents and they just either and they did what they gave me the best that they could and one thing about my parents i always knew like if the stuff really hit the fan they were there for me like that i knew that even though they weren't around and not around my daily life one thing i knew is like they would be there for me if something happened and and that counts for a lot in my book yeah I mean, I know you got to be grateful for that repaired relationship and that new clarity uh, that comes with, you know, owning your part in different things. But I want to ask you, uh, you know, what, what would you say you're most grateful for today? I mean, what comes to mind right up front is my, I have three very healthy, smart, intelligent, bright sons. They've all done just good, man, in their lives, and they're all living their own lives, and good, and they're up to good things, positive things, and they're just all starting out. But they've, like, I, I'm like, I can't take credit for all that. So I kind of am grateful to God and whatever angels have been looking over them and me <laughs> to have my sons turn out so well. That's right there, and then. Yeah, I'm grateful for whatever like has been thrown at me. I'm grateful for whatever has been granted to me to be able to go through life and whatever hardships are thrown at me. Starting from a pretty young age, I've been able to convert those experiences into growth. And somehow they've strengthened me and made me better. And so I imagine life is hard for most people. I know that and I imagine it. I don't know how everybody lives each day. And we all see each other's outer worlds, but we can't see inner, each other's inner worlds. It seems like there's a lot of suffering in the world right now. A lot of anxiety, a lot of uncertainty and the anxiety that comes out of uncertainty and, and all of that, um, just from living through this pandemic and all the unknowns and yada, yada. But I'm grateful that I can convert things in such a way that strengthen me, but then I just have a natural desire to share whatever I learned that could maybe help another person or another human being to make their life more easeful or with less suffering or more empowered or stronger like that. What would you say to, to somebody that um, that person that is struggling right now, maybe that person that is uh, riddled in fear and anxiety from the uncertainty or what's gone down over these last couple of years. And maybe this Mm -hmm. person actually, they know the biggest thing holding them back, but they don't know what to do about it. What would you say to that person? Yeah, I would say stay out of your head. Make your practice be about staying out of your head and whatever that takes for you if it's you know being physically taking care of yourself physically you know eating well and but like getting you know whether it's in a yoga mat 
or getting, you know, lifting weights or getting up on a, a mountain out into nature and, and stay in your body, stay in your breath. And, and there's some power in staying out of your head. I think meditation is a unique, for me, is a unique way. It's different than all the other physical practices for me. Is to, there's a power in being still, like getting still or moving towards some kind of stillness into and toward that small place, a quiet place of truth within us and meditation to get to what's real and physical, different than, yeah, living up in the head, man, is not a good place to be, I, I say for any of us. So I'd say doubt thoughts, watch thoughts, and yeah, make your practice about staying out of your head. I'll give you a quick thing for whoever's listening. It's if you imagine a pink elephant in your head right now, just imagine a pink elephant. Can you imagine a pink elephant in your head? Okay, now lift your right hand, let's say right hand, and just imagine your index finger or actually get present. You can even look at your index finger, your right index finger, and look at the index finger, feel it, think of it, and notice that pink elephant in your mind. It's not there, is it? You're really present to your hand or your finger. That elephant in the head went away. Yeah. Was that like that for either of you? I know. It's, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 A buddy of mine just did that, that on me. And I'm like, yeah, that's perfect. It's like, that's what happens for me in meditation. I just get in my body, physical sensations, get present to the physical universe, the floor beneath me, the ceiling, the, the walls around. I like I get present here physically and the thoughts disappear in. Along with those thoughts disappearing, the anxiety, the worry. Worry is a big one for people. Stay out of worry. Stay in faith. What would you say to someone that their story might be, I can't meditate, my mind never stops thinking? Or what would you recommend to somebody that is brand new to meditation? How to start? How long? The best access point? Yeah, Yeah, it's really good. Just sit. Find a chair, find a quiet, undistracted place, leave your phone in another room and or sit on a pillow or sit on the floor, but just sit and maybe dedicate 10 minutes. And you just sit and just watch, just be. And it, I don't know, meditation, it's like for me often, you know, maybe, you know, that experience when you first get on your mat, you don't want to go to class, you don't want to go get on the mat, or you don't want to go to the gym. But as soon as you get there, and I don't know, you're into, once you start moving and breathing, like, oh man, you just feel like you came home, like so glad I did this. And it's like with meditation, I think it's almost like you just have to go do the thing. It's just the actioning. I think that's, you know, if you're dealing with a lot of head stuff, anxiety, worry, like I think being in action, but even the action of just sitting, placing your body and just like putting your attention on your breath notice your body and just watch your thoughts. I mean, it's so simple that I think for a beginner, it it feels overwhelming because it's like meditation is supposed to be peaceful, but this is like painful. But I think it's just doing the thing. As Emerson said, you know, do the thing and you'll have the power. I think meditation, you just have to go sit without any expectations. Just sit and watch and just practice letting go of your thoughts. Just letting go of your thoughts, watching the thoughts just releasing and see what happens. But it comes with practice, right? It's like cumulative. 
that's powerful. I appreciate you sharing that because a lot of people, including me, uh, a few years ago, I always thought that the thoughts that I had were me. Uh, I identify oh, yeah. those thoughts as myself, whereas those thoughts aren't me. Those thoughts mm. are just the constant chatter that the mind puts off. And it's something that I observe, something that I watch. And those thoughts could lead me mm. to, to the places I need to go deeper inside of me. But those thoughts aren't me. It's just wow. going to talk and it's going to yap yeah. all day long. But it's, it's just something that I observe. Like you said, yeah. observate. That made a lot of, it made a lot of sense to me. Mm. It's like some people mm. like observate what like, but to me it like it made so much <laughs> yeah. sense because that's what we're doing. We're sitting, we're watching, and being aware that we're aware. So yeah. I, I appreciate wow. you saying that. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, there's something about that, right? Like I, 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 I so relate to what you just said, uh, Darren, because it's like I had that same kind of experience at some point. It was probably when I was like had just all this anger. I was just all bottled up. So my, there was no separation. There was no like me and then thoughts. There was just uh, anything I thought was me. So if I was having terrible thoughts or negative thoughts, it was just how it was. It was who I am. There was no separation. But yeah, I mean, as you say that, I think over time, it's like, okay, now I, I sit and meditate or I'm going through my day and I see I'm in my head. I'm in worry or I've got some kind of a- anxious thoughts. And it's like, okay, wait. I have thoughts, but I'm not those thoughts. That's very powerful. Like that's an access to some freedom, I think, right there for any of us. So yeah. And I like how you say aware of being aware. It's like, whoa, it's like kind of multi, I'm a multi-dimensional being. If all my awareness and attention is on worry, and if I can be aware, that's where my awareness is flowing. If I can just watch it and start separating from all that worry and the thoughts of worry, it's like suddenly they start losing their power. They get somehow diffused or something. It's a slow, gradual process, but to anybody that's listening, it's definitely worth the work. It's definitely worth uh, the time and the investment. Before we get you out of here today, we love to show love to the people in our lives that have helped us and been there along the way with us in our journeys when things have gotten rough when things have you know been hopeless or we get anxious so i want to ask you if you could give a comeback story shout out to one person or a few people that have been rocks and been steady in your life who would that one person or a few people be oh yeah well my buddy john who he lives in new york city he's also an aa guy i think like 35 years sober something like that and and John Sullivan, he's a man who is like, he just to me models like what it is to be for other people and being other people being the best version of themselves, but including me. He's that kind of friend that we may not talk sometimes for a year or two even, but man, when we reconnect, it's like we never left each other. And he's always right there, like in the hardest of times, the darkest of times when I hit bottom, it's like, that's, that's one man, John, who I know is like just a rock for me and he lives it. <laughs> Shout out to John. Well, Baron, man, we want to thank you for jumping on with us. Where can people find you? Where's the easiest platforms to track you down? And check me out on baronbaptiste.com. Baronbaptiste.com. I'm on Instagram, uh, Baron Baptiste Yoga as well. Not too active on, on social media, but I will be. And then on YouTube as well, Baron Baptiste. 
Beautiful, man. Well, um, I just want to acknowledge you personally for the way you show up in the world. It's interesting. I never have done any training under you, but I've had many, many times students at retreats or um, at, at the festivals that will come up and go, did you train under Baron? So some somewhere, whether it's the voice, the teaching style, there's something there. But I think what I resonate most with you is how you make yoga accessible to all. And I think that's one of my big missions is to make it accessible to everybody. I always say yoga is for everybody, right? And everybody's different. Every day is different. So that piece of it, and then just how you seem to like really create these empowering environments for people. I have so many, we have some mutual friends and I have some friends that trained under you and you have just rocked their world and changed their lives in such a beautiful way. And to watch them come into communities like back here in Phoenix and shine the way they do. It's really cool to witness. And I just appreciate you for, for how you show up, man. Wow. Thank you. That means a lot. And that's um, a big, <laughs> a big thing to live up to. So I appreciate that. And uh, I really want to acknowledge just what you guys are up to here and just the theme and, and the work you do in this podcast to really empower people and show people there's always a, a way up. There's always a way up no matter how low you go. Right. So, and Darren, congrats and uh, have a, have a great training and uh, season. I'm going to be looking for you. (laughs) Thank you. All right, everybody. We're out. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's going to get crowned. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.